Okay, good evening, everybody. Very special thank you to Dr. and Mrs. Imiak for sponsoring tonight's class in honor of their new grandson, the Friedman, uh, the Friedman baby boy. So mazel tov to the Friedman family. And a thank you to the Imiaks. And we look forward to Mr. Shem uh, sharing in many simchas together. Special thank you as always to Torah Anytime for sharing this class and many others with those of you who are not here presently this evening. The topic this evening is the danger of compromise. It's amazing how difficult it is to resolve a conflict or to even be more insightful being able to, to be roas and Lola looking into the future and stopping things from progressing. So often in any relationship, you can have that, that beginning of the downward cycle. I say something that's not so sensitive, you say something back, and then it brings up older memories and baggage and trauma that we never fully worked out, and it could just go downhill very, very quickly. To prevent machlokas, to stay away from conflict, to try to ease friction, requires a tremendous rutzon, a desire to keep shalom, to maintain peace and harmony. It requires chachma, a lot of wisdom, a lot of thought, being honest with ourselves. And it oftentimes requires gevura. It takes courage. It's not easy to be the man speak to stop things from declining. The danger of compromise is somewhat of a, of a misleading title. I first want to speak about the blessing of compromise and the unbelievable bracha that we find when people are working together and people are b'shalom and we're able to find pshara, we're able to, to create common ground there is no blessing greater than shalom. And then we'll hopefully get into some of the dangers involved, when to compromise, when to just say, you know what, if that's the way you want it, I'm going to support you, although it's not really what I enjoy. And when do we say, I'm sorry, but under no circumstance am I willing to let this happen. There is an article in uh, some of the, the Jewish uh, online news recently I removed the names of the yeshivas and the type of Jews that were involved there's no point to share that but this goes back to December 2nd this is from Yeshiva World News a long-standing feud between Bachrim right, young men from neighboring yeshivas escalated to an unimaginable level on Monday night according to multiple sources the Bachrim from Yeshiva A have been complaining that Bahrim from Yeshiva B have been harassing them for quite some time. They claim that they've been verbally abused, physically attacked, and sometimes things thrown at them. Whether or not that's true, we don't know. On Monday, the Bahrim from Yeshiva A claim that eggs were thrown at their Rebbe. It does not appear the eggs hit their target, but the act was enough to infuriate them to take matters into their own hands. As can be seen in the videos and images below, we have one picture here on the, uh, the source sheets, 
A large group of around 100 Bachrim entered Yeshiva B and literally trashed the entire building, causing tremendous damage. Many are asking why police were not called to deal with the situation instead of what transpired today. So obviously it's a very disturbing article and the images are even more disturbing. I think many people when they read something like this, we're thinking to ourselves, how in the world does this happen? You have yeshivas, you have young men who are learning Torah, and there's some friction, there's something there, there's a sukh sukh. You're doing something that we don't like, we're doing something that offends you, you don't have the utmost respect for us, or vice versa. But how does that lead to such craziness? that I'm going to feel somehow vindicated to go with all of my group into your yeshiva and destroy the yeshiva. How is that possible? And I think sometimes we might even look at the people who were involved and write it off as, oh, that's uh, that kind of Jewish thing or that sect. I would never do this. But I want to share with you something even more troubling, the reality is every single person in this room, given the right situation, given the right combination of circumstance, we might do the exact same thing. And we might feel that somehow we're doing the will of God by going into another yeshiva and destroying the place. That's the power of machlokis. That's the poison that's infused into any kind of disagreement, it could take us down to the lowest of lows and do things that we would never imagine ourselves doing. But it's not a question of them or those guys or that type of yeshiva. It's really a question of us. This is human nature. The morale says in a beautiful interpretation of Rashi in the Gurarie, Based on the Pasuk, when there's a debate, when there's a fight between two men, the Gerari explains that the, the process of any kind of fight is it always, or at least usually it starts off small. The example he gives is a bidka demaya. You have, you have a dam holding back water, and there could be a little bit of a crack. And if it's not attended to, if you don't call the people to fix it, what will happen? It'll get bigger. And then more water will begin to seep out. Until the point, explains the morale, to the point where all of this water will break through that cement barrier and destroy. So too when it comes to any kind of friction we have with other people. When it starts even just a little bit, right? We're sensing a little tension here. And we don't, we don't automatically have the Ratzon, have the Chachma, we don't have the will, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the strength to make sure to take responsibility to stop it before it grows. It's the exact same thing as that little crack getting bigger and bigger until finally the entire wall crumbles and the water comes gushing forth destroying the entire city 
It's not just about those people or that type of Judaism. It's about us. This is human nature. This is the, uh, the devastating poison of Machlokas. Rashi says that what's the greatest blessing? We have in Parshas B'chukosai where we have all of the calamities that will befall the Jewish people in the future. It starts off with the brachos, with the wonderful blessings we look forward to. Going to have enough food, enough water and rain, and the crops will grow. Everything will be with bracha. And the Pasuk tells us that we'll have everything we need. And v'nesati shalom ba'aretz. Hashem says, I'm going to give you peace in the land as well. So Rashi explains that you might be thinking, listen, Hare Michael, Hare Mishta, we have everything we need physically, we're taken care of, our enemies are not attacking us. So what else can I possibly ask for? The answer, says Hashem, is there's one more thing. And without this one more thing, you should realize you have absolutely nothing. Im ein shalom ein klum. If you don't have peace, if we don't have harmony, then everything else is worthless. You can have the family where in business the father is so incredibly successful. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And properties all throughout the world. And people look up to him as this, uh, this matzliach, this person who is just like the, uh, the genius. Everyone asking advice. But if at home, when I come back after a long day of making a ton of money, I can't speak to my wife, I can't have a conversation with my children, and we're not working on creating peace and, and knocking down barriers, then everything I have, I might have my health, I might have my parnasa, I might have respect and admiration, all of that means nothing. My life will be miserable if I don't have shalom. Im ein shalom ein klum. Now, I know practically the only way to get shalom is through being able to compromise, being able to what we refer to as being mavater, as letting go. I don't have to be makbid. I don't have to always have it exactly the way I'd like it. I'm willing to let things go. I want to share with you a couple of different vignettes some uh, insight into different Gedoli Yisrael, some real Torah giants throughout the last few hundred years, in their own world, in their own uh, interactions, really bringing home this message. Uh, the first is a quote from Abshamshin Rafal Hirsch. We know that Abshamshin Rafal Hirsch, living in Germany, was really fighting the, uh, the origins of the reform movement, trying to keep authentic... Judaism, pristine, trying to keep it um, the way it was for hundreds of years prior. At the same time, realizing there was a lot to do and a lot of uh, people who were very concerned about the future of Judaism. So what he did was something radical. He broke off from the main kahilah, right? There was one main community. In the olden days, it wasn't kind of every man and every shul for themselves, but there was a real formalized group granted this some level of autonomy by the government and that was the kahila that was the community the shamshanafel hirsch felt that because there were influences of different types of judaism that he felt could have a real negative impact 
on, uh, on the people who were trying to, to stay true to Yadus, he took the radical step of breaking off and making his own kahila. And there was a lot of conversation between people in his kahila and the people in the larger, more established kahila. But he gives the advice as follows. People were approaching him. They were asking, is it possible to make a psak, right, to share a ruling that the shechita, the kashros from the main congregation should be viewed as treif? And that way, first of all, it's not reliable. And second of all, financially speaking, it'll be helpful to our shochet, to the person who's actually, you know, a God-fearing Jew, and he's doing things according to halacha. Can you make a statement saying that shechita from the main community is considered non-kosher? This was his response. Leave alone the kashros or lack thereof of the other congregation and totally forget about it. Raise your hands to God with serenity and without resentment, not taking into account others or scorning them, to live only for the sake of the divinely sanctified cause. Build your own institutions. In short, do not pay any attention to the other congregation. Do not try to compete. Do not try to outdo them. Do not try to put them down but rather do that which will advance the cause of your own kehila, and God will be with you and cause everything done purely for his sake to succeed. If you analyze this message carefully, there is so much depth here. Rav Shamshim Rafal Hirsch didn't run away from Machlokas, but at the same time he wanted people to, to keep the clarity, what is our mission? What are we trying to do? We're just trying to uphold and maintain the Kedusha of Klal Yisrael, the sanctity of the Jewish people. And therefore, we decided to break away and do our own thing. And of course, we disagree vehemently in the ideologies and the philosophies of the other Kehillah. But don't waste your time competing with them. Don't waste your time trying to put them down and, 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 and be the spokesman for everyone else out there that we have it right and they have it wrong and their thing is puzzle, they're invalid, their, their meat is treif, our meat is kosher. Don't play that game. You're going to bring yourselves down. You just build. Just build. Don't make machlokas. This is a very important hashkafa, philosophy that really penetrates everything we do in life. We try our best not to make any conflict. At the same time, we don't run away from conflict. If we're pursuing truth and that may offend someone in our doing so, then we have to be as sensitive as possible. But we don't run away from a fight but we try our best not to instigate and not to have that as the main theme of our discussion. People will do what they're going to do, we do what we need to do, and of course we, clear, uh, we care about the rest of Klal Yisrael, we care about the rest of humanity, but focus on building. Don't focus on putting other down. The, uh, the Bab of Rebbe, Rav Shlomo Halberstam. So, there was one particular time where there was a different faction that had major complaints against his form of Hasidus, and they were putting up posters and different things that were very, very chutzpahdik, very negative against uh, the Baba Varebbe and against his form of Hasidus. 
And the Rebbe got wind that some of his Hasidim, some of his followers, were, uh, were, were doing things to defend his honor. They were getting into skirmish, getting into a fight with other people, trying to defend the, uh, the covet of their Rebbe. So they were sitting at Chalashudas, at the Tish, where he was sitting in front, and all of the Hasidim were gathered around, and singing songs, and divrei Torah, and words of inspiration. And then the Baba Rebbe says to all of his Hasidim, I want you to know something. Listen very carefully. Everyone who's spoken out against us and against me personally, I've already forgiven them. However, if there is anyone here who continues the conflict, I want you to know that I will never forgive you, not in this world, nor the next. That was basically his way of saying, don't get into the fight. Don't let them drag you down if they're saying things that are inappropriate. So then it is what it is, but don't lower yourself to their level. Them I forgive, but you I will not forgive if you continue the fight. There is a, a very prestigious Rosh Hashiva who was having a conversation one time with Shlomo Zalman Arabach. And he was explaining to Shlomo Zalman that you have, it, you have it so much better than I do. I'm involved with all these different political issues and hacking and fighting and this person's trying to do that, out, outdo that person and I have no manuchas nefesh, I have no rest and I look at you and you just seem to be like in your little Gan Eden. I'm jealous of you. So Shlomo Zalman said back, it's true. I live in an atmosphere of Ghanaian, but I want to explain why I'm able to do that. So he told this man that whenever I sense that someone else would like to elbow me aside, I immediately withdraw a distance of several miles. Long before he actually thinks of insulting me, there is no one there for him to insult because I have long since moved away and set my honor aside. So Shlomo Zalman was telling this other very prestigious Rosh Hashiva, the reason why I'm not so involved with all of the, the politics is because whenever I have that sense, whenever there's an indication that somebody has a taina on me, someone has a complaint, and it's not like a value I need to stand up for and fight for, as is in the case of Rav Hirsch, but it's just, you know, pit, petty things. So then, you know what I do? I don't even bother and I just back down, and I don't care. And that's how I live in bliss. Right? Much easier said than done, but that was the life of Shlomo Zalman Arbach. The last vignette here is from Rav Pam, Rav Ram Yaakov Pam. He writes in uh, his sefer, Atar Lamelech, he says, who is the Ish Chesed? Who is the man who pursues kindness? Don't think that chesed is only in the classic examples of inviting people for a meal or giving money to charity or visiting the sick. What's the foundation? What's the basis of chesed? It's avas habrios vesinas machlokis. Here we have probably the most powerful guidance 
and how to be an Ish Chesed. It's something that we all want to be. It's so incredibly difficult. Rav Palm defines it for us. Avas habrios v'sinas hamachlokis, which means I try my best to love and appreciate and respect people, and I hate more than anything. I hate more than anybody the concept of conflict. That means that I hate machlokis more than I hate you. And if I'm able to live by that, I could be a different person, I could be a different human being, it could be a different family, it could be a different world. Rapam continues, Radifas HaShalom, the idea of pursuing peace, being proactive in trying to, to bring people together, and trying to distance myself as far away as possible from fighting and disagreement. He quotes one of the letters of the Chazanish, where the Chazanish wrote, any straw, any little bit of machlokis that I'm sensing, it weighs down on me like a heavy beam. The Chazonish was expressing his own feelings. When it comes to any kind of friction, I can't stand that. I want to stay as far away as possible. That's Rav Hirsch giving his instructions to his own kahila. Keep on building. Don't put down other people. Do your thing and don't compete. That's the Baba Vareba telling his Hasidim, don't worry about what other people are saying, and if you fight with them and lower yourselves to their level, you're degrading me and you're degrading the Torah. That's of Shlomo Zaman Arabach giving his secret to life and his secret to serenity. When I see there's something petty that someone really cares about more than I do, I'm not going to let my own ego get in the way. And that's Rav Palm giving us the definition of an Ish Chesed. I love you, I respect you, and I hate Machlokis more than I resent you. Now, it's not just this, uh, the holy desire to avoid having a Machlokis, but it also requires a lot of thought. You've got to be a Pikeach. A Pikeach means I'm really trying to strategize to the best way possible, how do I avoid hurting you? How do I avoid planting more seeds of machlokas in the future? Shlomo Zaman Arabach was actually standing under a chuppah, and he was about to be Masader Kedushin. He was about to lead the ceremony. We had the two Adim ready to go. The two witnesses were standing there. It was a Yemenite wedding, a lot of beautiful decorations. Right before the chuppah starts, someone comes over to Shlomo Zalman, a trustworthy fellow, and he whispers in his ear, Rabbi, we have a problem. One of the two witnesses is actually part of a small sect where they deny the authenticity of the Zohar, and I know that Rabbi feels they might not be kosher edim. Just letting you know, this is not a rumor, this is not hearsay, but I'm sharing this with you. It's, it's real. So now, place yourself in the shoes of Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach. What do you do? You can't go through with the chasana because you need two kosher witnesses and one of them is not kosher. So you could either ask them to please step down. You know, maybe you would prefer the uh, ceremony from sitting in the front row and we'll get someone else to be an aide. That wouldn't go over so well. 
Or you could say, listen, Ice North, this is what you deserve. You're part of a group that denies the authenticity of the Zohar. You're puzzle. And, and make the announcement over the loudspeaker. That wasn't his approach either. So he thought about it for a few seconds and he went over to the guy and said like this. He said, excuse me, I have to ask you a favor. I've never had the opportunity to be an aide at a chasana. I never had the chance to be a witness before. Being a, one of the two witnesses during the Kedushan, during the wedding, is actually one of the greatest kibudim, one of the highest honors. Do me a favor, can you be Masada Kedushin? Can you come here and say the brachos? And I'll be the aide instead. And the person was obviously floored by that request. <laughs> Am I going to be the Masada Kedushin? We have one of the, the greatest minds of our generation standing here. Rebbe, please, I'm fine. But he insisted, I really want to be an aide. I haven't done this before. Here, here's the mic. Here's the little sitter. Do your thing. And that's how he was able to solve the problem, have a kosher kedushin, but at the same time, not be mavaza, not bring someone down. So it's not just the desire to keep shalom, it requires strategy and thinking, what can I do, what can I say, not to hurt somebody else. Now here's the danger. What's the danger of compromise? So this is the dialogue between Yaakov and Esav. Source number nine we're told that Yaakov sends his malachim, he sends his messengers to Esav, and the message was very, very clear. Ko amar avdecha Yaakov, your servant Yaakov says, im lovin garti arata, I've been living with Uncle Lovin, and that's where I've been until now. And Rashi famously says that really coded within that message was, im lovin garti, I was living with Lovan, the taryag mitzvah shemarti, but you should know, Esav, I kept all of the mitzvahs when I was there, v'lo l'madati m'maisav and I didn't learn from any of his deceitful, evil ways. That was the message that Yaakov sent to Esav. This is where I've been, and by the way, you should know, every year, every week, every day of my life, even though I was living in the house of Lavan, I was keeping the Torah and doing the mitzvos, sheltering myself from his negative influence, doing what I needed to do to remain an Ehrlich, an honest Jew. So Ramosha Feinstein's bothered by a, a fairly obvious question. Why was Yaakov trying to send this particular message to Esau? At this point, all we know is that Yaakov is afraid. Esau has years and years of, of resentment. His intention is, I am going to kill my brother for stealing everything from me and taking my destiny. So you're trying to, to pacify him. You're trying to explain to him where you've been. You're trying to make shalom. <coughs> so why do you have to tell him that I kept the entire Torah and I didn't learn from Lavan? Explains Rav Moshe Feinstein. What Yaakov was doing is that he was telling his brother, I want nothing more in the world than to be able to reunite with you and to live b'shalom, to live in harmony, like brothers should. However, at the very beginning, 
I want to set forth my stipulation. My stipulation is, is that I will never compromise on my Torah values, even though I want to make sure we could live ba'achva, we could live as brothers, but you should know off the bat, I will never compromise on my Torah values. That's how Ramosha Feinstein explains the message of Yaakov to Esav. Now, it's still somewhat strange. Why would he have to share that condition with his brother? Maybe Yaakov's thinking it deep down, that I'm not going to do anything that I feel uncomfortable with. But, but why does he have to verbalize that? What is the point in sharing that with Esav as the first message he sends him? So I think part of it is actually to enhance Shalom. And you find this so often. I had a conversation recently with uh, a young lady who's working in the, the secular world in corporate America, and she was offered a new position. And uh, she was going back and forth whether or not I should tell them that I am a mother and I do have family responsibilities and I am Shomer Shabbos, I'm not going to be able to come in on Saturdays, even for quote-unquote emergencies, I'm not going to have my phone on me. On one hand, maybe better I just don't say any of that, because there's an automatic bias against me. I'm religious and I'm a mother. In corporate America, those two things may not bode well for you. On the other hand, I, I want to be open with them. I want them to realize what my schedule needs to be. What should I do? So I think the answer is, is straightforward intellectually, just sometimes it's hard to, to stand your ground. The answer is, you need to set forth at the very beginning, this is who I am. I am a mother, and I do have these responsibilities, and I do have certain limitations, and although I'm not going to come in on Pesach, but I'm willing to work on Easter. Right? I'm not going to come in on a, on a yontif, but I'll make sure to be there New Year's. It's not about trying to get out of my, my achrayas for the company. It's just letting you know this is who I am, and in a sense, take it or leave it. But by making it very clear from the onset, this is who I am, this is what I believe in, and I'm not going to compromise on these values, that's actually mitigating conflict in the future. Don't have expectations of me that are just totally unrealistic because that's not who I am. That's not who I'm willing to become. So it could very well be, according to Ramosha Feinstein, Yaakov is sending the message to Esau, I love you, I'm willing to work with you, here's my basic uh, stipulation, my condition is I love and keep and guard the Torah, and if that's willing to coincide with how you want to have a relationship with me, that's fine. Otherwise, don't speak to me about Shalom. Although Shalom is one of the highest priorities, not at the expense of what I believe to be true. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs has a famous quote <clears throat> He says, non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism, and they are embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by Judaism. Non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism, and they're embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by Judaism. An example, a case in point, where compromise may be a very dangerous thing. The very beginning of Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah tells us 
People might not appreciate what you're doing. You're saying a bracha, you're davening mincha in the office, it looks strange. They might make fun of you. You're coming in during svira with a little bit of a beard. They might poke fun. Don't be embarrassed from them. Let them say whatever they want. Explains the Mishnah in Bura. Why do we take this approach? So he says, No matter what, don't fight with them. Don't try to defend your honor by getting into a real quarrel. What's the big deal? Maybe I should stand up for myself. So explains the Mishnah in Ma'od. Because when I act brazenly towards somebody, I have some level of chutzpah, even though it might be called for in this situation. The reason why it's so incredibly dangerous is because it might have a kinyan, it might have an impact, it might have a transformative power on who I am. And I might be chutzpahdik, I might have that same level of boldness or brazenness outside of the proper context of Avodos Hashem. And I might use it in different areas of life where it has no place. So Azus, right, being chutzpahdik, being brazen, use that very, very sparsely, if at all, because that could change you forever. So that's why, explains the Mishnah Brura, the Ramah tells us, don't fight with people, let them put you down, don't make a whole big deal out of it. However, there is an exception. The Bir Halacha writes that you should know the Beis Yosef, the source of this Halacha, he was only telling us to ignore people making fun of the mitzvos when it's directed at me, when it's a personal attack, so then don't fight with the people, don't give them the time of day, don't give them the legitimacy by responding to them. However, But if you're standing in a place where there are people who are denying basic principles of Torah, and they have an agenda, not just making fun of you as a person, but their agenda is to try to change Judaism to try to bring it in a different direction. And they want to change things. They want to establish new institutions and new rules and new guidelines. You start off with shalom. You always start off trying to engage them in a peaceful way. But if you see, explains the Biralacha, that they're not listening and they're not willing to have an open and honest dialogue with you, and they're continuing with their pursuits, in this kind of case, the Beis Yosef would never advise us to keep your mouth shut. To the contrary, this is a time where there's no room for compromise. You stand up and you fight for Torah values and you do everything within your ability to make sure this doesn't happen. Because it's not about me personally. It's not about my hurt or my self-esteem. It's about Klai Yisrael. It's about the Jewish community. Then you have to stand up and fight. So it sounds like we see here again. On one hand, if it's against me, just take a chill pill, relax, keep on doing your thing. Like Rav Hirsch was giving the advice, you build, don't focus on competition or responding to others. 
But once they're targeting the Jewish community, once they're trying to make new policies that are going in direct opposition with Torah values, then you have to stand up and you have to fight for the cause. How do you do that? And, and this is where it gets very delicate. Because I think some people, when they hear this kind of message, deep down the feeling is, for aggression. Baruch Hashem, right? I am allowed to stand up and yell at people sometimes, and that's what the Beis Yosef is okay with. There's something that feels good about that. So how to do this, and, and, and where should those emotions be coming from, is very, very subtle. In the biography of Rav Hirsch, the, uh, the author notes that there was a particular time within his own kahila, his own community, where there were people who were fighting against circumcision. And they were influencing others. Not to circumcise your child, it's barbaric, that's not really what the Torah wants from us. And it sounds like there, there was a conversation, there, there were some level of uh, back and forth, but these people had a clear agenda. We want to help others not harm their children. That was their agenda. And Rav Hirsch was very strong. He basically said, if that's your stance, you have no place in this community. It's not about me, but you're trying to bring down the banner of Torah. You're trying to convince other people not to do mitzvos. That's not okay. But listen to the way he, he explained his opinion. He added that the expulsion should not be made in a strong, that it should be made rather in a strong, unambiguous, yet calm manner, without anger or invective. Nor he wrote, not he wrote, that one could expect this to make these people change. It's not about trying to get them to do tshuva, but it must be clear that this expulsion is not intended as a punishment or as a means to embarrass them, but only to rescue pure Judaism. So even in a time where he felt it was worthy of asking people to leave the community because of your negative influence, don't do it with anger. Don't do it with like a personal sense of resentment. This is what needs to be done. I still love you as a person, but you can't be here because we will not allow that kind of agenda to be promoted. A few years back, there was a statement of the Moetzis Gedoli HaTorah of America, where they came out very vocally against a movement known as Open Orthodoxy. And part of their proclamation, just read a couple of lines here, they wrote, Open Orthodoxy and its leaders and affiliated entities, including, but not limited to, Yeshivas Chovei Torah, Yeshivat Merat, and the International Rabbinic Fellowship, have shown countless times that they reject the basic tenets of our faith, particularly the authority of the Torah and its sages. Accordingly, they are no different than any other... Can read this? Desident movements throughout our history that have rejected these basic tenets. We therefore inform the public that in our considered opinion, 
Open orthodoxy is not a form of Torah Judaism, orthodoxy, and that any rabbinic ordination, which they call smicha, granted by any of its affiliated entities to their graduates, does, their graduates does not confer upon them any rabbinic authority. May the Almighty have mercy on the remnants of his people and repair all breaches in the walls of Torah, and may, be we, may we be worthy to witness the raising of the glory of Hashem and his sacred Torah, signed by really all of the contemporary Gedola Yisrael. So there was a question that was posed to Rav Aaron Feldman. Rav Aaron Feldman, one of the great Rosh Hashivas of our time, the Rosh Hashiva in Baltimore and near Yisrael. And the question was, based on this proclamation, that open orthodoxy is a movement that exists on the left fringe of, of the modern orthodox world. Why did the Moetzis, why did this gathering of Torah leaders feel it necessary to deal with an issue that on the face of it has little to do with the Haredi public. It has little to do with the, the more religious aspects of Judaism. Additionally, how much of an effect will it have on Jews who are philosophically far from the Agudat's orbit? Meaning to say, the, uh, the person interviewing with Aaron Feldman was asking, what was the point of this whole proclamation, this kol kore? Your readers, people who are listening to the instructions and the advice of this particular group, they're what the world calls ultra-Orthodox. So they're not even talking about this new side fringe movement, open orthodoxy. What's the point of even bringing it up? Listen to his response. Feldman wrote back, or he answered, the movement is becoming increasingly powerful. It is our business, because Haredim are not an isolated group. We are one Jewish people. This is especially so as regards as regards to the modern Orthodox, who share our fundamental belief system. Right? Within Orthodoxy, there are many different shades and colors, and people could have different ideas and philosophies and misoras, but overall, we share the same core values. Open Orthodoxy is something that is cutting away at the fringes of Am Yisrael. It's the business of the Moetzei Gedolei HaTorah to care about Klal Yisrael. Meaning to say it might not have a direct impact on the quote-unquote ultra-Orthodox, but it is having an impact on the Jewish people. We can not only be concerned if our Shabbos Kugel comes out well, we must worry about the Jewish people as a whole. Right, you hear that? It's not just about the Shabbos Kugel coming out well, but we have to be concerned for Am Yisrael. And this is having a negative impact on the Jewish people. We want to ensure that those who choose to attend Orthodox shuls should hear hashkafos and halachos that represent a true belief system. It is our duty to warn them not to take rabbis who lead them astray from authentic Yiddishkeit. People in all areas of the Frum world need to realize that open Orthodox movement is one that has already led and stands to continue leading the Jewish people away from the Torah. So we're not going to get into a conversation on this topic, but the realization, sometimes it's not okay to compromise. Sometimes you have to make the Torah stance very clear, very straightforward. We're okay with this, a lot of different ways of doing it, 
But there are certain things that we're not okay with if it goes in contrast to core beliefs and core, core ideals of Torah Judaism. The reason why this whole hashkafa, this whole philosophy, is incredibly difficult and is oftentimes abused and misapplied is because it's not coming from a pure source. When you're someone like Rav Aaron Feldman and you feel the need to speak out against something, you have the authority to do so. When it comes to our own lives, we have to be extremely careful and cautious. When do we say, I'm not going to compromise because I know the way I'm doing it is right and the way they're doing it is wrong? How do we know the way we're doing it is right? How do we know the way they're doing it is wrong? So often it's based on my own bias, my own agenda, my own negia. It's a very, very slippery slope. If you had to think of the greatest zealot throughout history in the Tanakh, who would you think of? What name comes to mind? Pinchas. Pinchas is known as the Kanoi. He stood up for the honor of God and he did something incredibly gruesome. He killed two people in, in, in front of hundreds and hundreds of people who were there. You have Zimri and Cosby, Zimri being the leader of the entire tribe of Shimon, doing something terribly immoral in public view, Pinchas stands up with this righteous zeal and he kills both of them. And as he does so, that stops the entire plague, the Magefa that was killing thousands of people in Klal Yisrael. So we view Pinchas as the paradigm of a zealot. But if you get a little bit into the mindset of Pinchas, what was he thinking? What was he feeling? What was the process that led him to do what he did? There's a lot that went into it. The Svorno tells us that the main motivation of Pinchas was he wanted to bring forgiveness to the entire tribe of Shimon. What did they do wrong? They saw their leader doing something terribly immoral and disgusting, and they didn't stop him. They didn't make a macha, they didn't stand up for truth. So therefore Pinchas felt, I'm going to risk my life attempting to kill their tribal leader, even though I know they might kill me in defense of, uh, of Zimri. But I'm going to do it so hopefully they won't, and they're going to see me taking care of business, of, of finally having justice, and just like they didn't stop him initially, and that was their sin, that was their mistake, when they see me doing the right thing, and they don't stop me, that will serve as their tshuva. That will serve as their way of gaining forgiveness. That was the mindset of Pinchas. So as he was doing this act that superficially seems very aggressive, if you get into the machshava, you get into the feeling, the thoughts that were going through his mind, it was coming from a source, not of just pure anger, not of aggression, it was coming from, from rachamim, from compassion. I want to save Klal Yisrael. I know, unfortunately, the only way that's going to happen right now 
is by taking these two lives. But it's not just I see something that makes me mad and I could defend my actions based on religious zeal. It was coming from a pure source. I want to help other people. That's what a real zealot is. The way that the, it's explained in the Chadusha Halev from um, Rosh Shiva. He explained that we see from this episode that Kanai, someone who's a real zealot, it's huzamargish ava virachmonus alachotim. It's someone who feels love and compassion for sinners. And he tries to help them and to save them from further punishment. If we see someone who's acting out against the sinners, or he's speaking with force against people or an institution that he feels is doing things that are terribly wrong, but we pick up on the fact that, you know what? As he's putting these people down, I'm not getting the sense that he really loves them so much. I don't get the sense that he's willing to push himself to try to, to help them, to guide them on a better track. And this guy who's speaking out so, so violently, he doesn't want them to do tshuva. Simen va'os, if that's the case, which 90-something percent of the time it probably is, that's a clear proof, hu eno kanoi amiti, he's not a real zealot. He looks like it, but he's not a real zealot. Shaharei ein kinoso novas mehamida hatahora shel avas Hashem va'avas klal Yisrael because his feelings are not flowing from a pure source of love of God and love of his fellow Jew. So when we ask ourselves, when is it dangerous to compromise? When do we have to put our foot down? When do we have to speak out against what people are doing? We should analyze honestly and openly as I'm feeling so bad and I'm feeling so much resentment, do I love the people to whom I feel are doing the wrong thing? Is my, is my, is my hislavos, is my fire also coming from a desire to help them? Or is it just this good old-fashioned sense of competition, that I'm better than you are, I see things clearly, you obviously don't see things clearly. If that's where it's coming from, I'm not the real deal, and I have no right to pretend to stand up for the glory of God, because that's not about the glory of God. That's about my own agenda, my own negativity. I was speaking to a friend of mine, weeks back he has a uh, he's involved with the yeshiva and there was some kind of disagreement where different people had different opinions it happens when you have right more than two Jews in a room and uh, there was one group basically saying maybe it's time we we just go our own separate ways 
You know, the, we, we had a, something different a few years back where the yeshiva was kind of split into two. Maybe it's time we go back into that mindset. You know, we're trying to work things out, trying to create shalom. But why? You have your view. We have our view. Okay. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. What's the point of trying to make shalom? So I want to share with you one of the most incredible passages from the Zohar. And this is something I've shared before because it is so, so important. We live in a time where everything is disposable. If it's not working, just throw it out. Let's try something new. We're going to do our thing. You do your thing. Says the Zohar, In this case, it's a shul. If you have one shul, if they're trying their best to guard the midah of shalom, right? They're trying to keep peace. That very endeavor of trying to keep shalom that could bring Mashiach. Im Cain, and therefore explains the Zohar. Bias Mashiach Teluya Biyadenu. The bringing of the redemption, the Geula Shalema, the thing we dive in for three times a day, it's really in our hands. We have the ability to bring that. How do we do it? If you have one dinky little shul with 15 people there, and everyone has their own opinion, and I don't like this, and you don't like that, and I prefer it this way, you prefer it that way. The Zohar's advice is not, you know what? Maybe go in different directions. Maybe split the yeshiva. The Zohar is telling us if we could somehow work past my interest and your interest, and we can make a pshara, we can make a compromise, and we could have shalom in this one little spot on planet Earth, even without changing the rest of Klal Yisrael, even without transforming humanity, but just to have real shalom in one shul, in one yeshiva, in one organization, that by itself has the power to bring Mashiach. That has the power to bring Geula. Im ein shalom ein klum. If we don't have shalom, we have nothing. Oftentimes we get so into the things we like and the, and the way we think it should be. But the highest priority, almost, almost over anything else, is the priority of shalom. We want to live in harmony. And if there's something that's bothering me, instead of just letting it fester, instead of just schmoozing about it with my chevra and then speaking down against another person or another institution, if I could have an open, healthy form of communication, and if you say something that's really hurtful towards me, so I'm going to bring it up with you, like a mensch, and we're going to work it out together. Because if we have the ratzon, we have the desire, we have the, the chachma, we have a strategy, and we try to work together, we can find a common ground. Everything is willing, everything should be compromised upon, except for the exclusion of certain basic fundamentals. But even when it's a danger to compromise, we never take that into our own hands. It's always through asking myself, where is this negativity coming from? And do I love the people against whom I have my, my feelings? And number two, just like Pinchas, 
before he acted, do you know what he did? He went to Moshe Rabbeinu and he asked Moshe, by the way, I just want to make sure, is this the correct halacha? Would you support me in this decision? It wasn't even his own decision. Right? So sometimes we can't compromise, sometimes it's dangerous to do so, but as much as humanly possible, bring things to the forefront. Work together to create shalom. And that bacon nishtachada, that one yeshiva, that one shul, that one family, working together, that itself can bring Mashiach. Have a wonderful night.